Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org. That's www.oalaig.org, where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep the special service active. I would like I would like to now introduce our speaker for tonight. Hi, I'm Allison, a compulsive reader. This is really working. It doesn't sound like it's. I mean, kind of like half sound, maybe, maybe not. How's that, Martha? Yeah. I can also project. I'm not shy. Um, thank you, Martha, so much for asking me to do this. Um, it really feels great. And, you know, I don't, I live down in Manhattan Beach now, and I, like, never get asked to speak. It's funny, when I used to live up here, I was, one time I spoke, like, at Serenity Sunday, this meeting, another meeting, like, really big meetings, like, within, like, a week and a half, and people were really tired of me. Um, <laughs> so I think it's been a couple years, so I've heard since I've been here, so it's, it's good to be back, and I really respect this meeting a lot. And Jeannie, it's just fabulous having you from Michigan. Um, I, um, my abstinence date is um, June 17th, 1989. Um, that is not when I came into program. I came into program in May of, is that right? Did I start? 1989, yeah. I came in May of 1985. So there was a, um, some on-again, off-again stuff before I actually got this abstinence. It is consecutive, back-to-back, uninterrupted abstinence. I have not had a little schnibben of cake just to see how it would taste in this last almost 23 years. It's... Um, I haven't binged. My brain's out in 23 years, um, almost 23 years, and I um, and my abstinence is pretty much, for the most part, three meals a day, fruit in between, a little bit more of a snack if I think I need it or I'm going to go a long time before having dinner or something, and um, no sugar in obvious dessert forms. So ketchup for you know very controversial. I don't worry about, but I also <laughs> don't I don't binge on ketchup. I binge on cake. Um, I am a hard, hard, hardcore sugar addict um, and binge eater. I mean, just there is no gray area there. I am capable of eating at least 6,000 calories a day. I was, um, this is just a quick aside, I was reading um, in People Magazine, you know, my go-to source, um, (laughs) about the celebrity who had gastric bypass surgery and had since gained like 100 pounds from it, and she's like, what was me? I didn't know I was eating like 2,200 calories a day, and that's how I gained 100 pounds. I'm like... Honey, I'm sorry, 2,200 calories a day is not going to gain you 100 pounds. 6,000 calories is going to, is going to gain you 100 pounds. Um, and that's why I am capable of gaining a pound a day. And I know because I um, am also a weighing addict, and I can get on the scale 20 times in a day. And I really loved it when they came out with those scales. This is obviously over 20 years ago. They had half-pound increments. Like, woo because that really mattered. And um, I have not a clue how much I weigh right now. I haven't weighed myself in... 15, 16, 17 years. It has been a very long time. And the reason why is because I found out that if I get on the scale and it says that I weigh more than I thought I should weigh, I get depressed and I eat more. And if I get on a scale and it says I weigh less than what I should weigh, I get all excited and I eat more. (laughs) It is just, it's information I don't need. Because what I am shooting for here, really shooting for, this is what program is giving me, is sanity in my head. I have the craziest, insanest, stupidest perception head imaginable. And what recovery has given me is freedom from all those insane demons in my head. Um, And so um, 
here's what my, my childhood was like, roughly, is um, I was a neither here nor there, chubby, uninteresting, dull, teased mercilessly kid. There was just, there was nothing special about me. You could, you could say that I maybe had potential. I don't know. I don't think it was really there. You know, it was just, I, I just sort of floated through life and, and really chubby and binging my brains out. You know, my father did this rule where I wasn't allowed to eat sugar. He read some article that it was bad for you. So when I was about 11 or 12 or something, he decided to take it away. And so I just found very creative ways to eat it. Like, we'll make the angel food cake before he came home, eat the whole thing, and then wash the pan and put it away. And that's what I did day in, day out. I just was, I was always a binge eater my whole life. And, um, and my binge drug of choice was sugar, but I would take anything else that was there too if sugar wasn't available. I just, I needed food. And what that food did for me from the earliest ages, from the earliest memories, is it helped me go out and cope with life on life's terms. It helped me walk out that door and pretend like I wasn't terrified of everything. You know, I am, as a compulsive overeater, I am somebody who is incredibly self-conscious and in my head. I would, my whole life, I would stand out, I would have a conversation with you, and I would be standing outside of that conversation evaluating how am I doing. And if I don't think I'm doing well, I would start tap dancing to try to get you to laugh, to get you to pay attention to me, or whatever it was. I just was in constant self-consciousness. And so um, my earliest drug was food, and that just helped me. What it did is it just grayed me out. It just numbed me, you know. And, um, and it also did this interesting thing that I wasn't really aware of until I got into recovery, which is that it made so much of my life be about food that I didn't have to worry about um, the other pain, the other emotional pain. I was, I was just in a lot of emotional pain growing up. It's like, so I really relate to people who are cutters. I didn't know about cutting when I was younger. Had I known about it, I would have done it. But it was, I really get that whole thing of causing pain in myself to distract from my emotional pain. And that's what food did for me. It was my form of cutting. I would, cause this, I would use food and cause the pain that it would cause from that to distract from all the emotional stuff out there that just was scaring me. Um, and that's how, I, that's how I did it. And I was teased a ton. And um, it was a really, it was a, I don't feel woes me about it. It was just a tough, brutal childhood. But what happened when I was um, 15 is I went on a diet. And I got really skinny. And I found myself modeling in New York City. It happened like that. Really, there was like, a, I don't know, a nine-month period of getting skinny and being in New York. My very first job was the cover of Seventeen magazine. Go figure. So what you get is you take this kid who, and so here's, here's my theory about getting skinny and whether it's an abstinence or out there dieting, is all it really gets you um, is that perception that if I, if I lose all this weight, I'm suddenly going to, like, be okay. All it really got me was a better set of clothes. You know, it's not like I got skinny and then suddenly felt comfortable in my own skin. I mean, in fact, if anything, I would get skinny and I'd feel much more wired in my skin. I'd feel much more, like, in tune, hyper, intense, and then also even more self-conscious. Like, oh, I really can't eat that because I don't want to get in this weight back because I love being so skinny, you know? And, um, damn, there's just a lot of insanity in my head. And um, I went and I did this modeling thing for two years on and off. I did it in New York and Paris and um, Germany, and um, I would not recommend anybody letting their teenage daughters go off by themselves to model it from 15 to 17 years old. That's how old I was, 15 to 17, by myself, living in New York, Paris, and Germany. Um, a lot of not great stuff happened. Good stuff happened. I, I don't regret the experience. I don't wish to shut the door on it. Um, but if any of you have kids and they're thinking about modeling, just wait. <laughs> it's not so good. Um, 
But I did it. But what happened is my eating disorder got in the way, and I couldn't keep up that career. There was just no way. I'm a binge eater. I needed to be very skinny. Anytime I'd gain like three or four pounds, suddenly the jobs would just stop. When I was really skinny, the jobs would flow. And so it was very – so eventually I had to give it up. And um, I was living in New York, and I moved back to Manhattan Beach, and I um, – I, I really got in, um, also at that point I got heavily into alcohol, I got into some drugs, um, mostly marijuana, um, and so here is my natural state, here is, here is me untreated in all of my isms, this is what it looks like, um, closed curtains, unshowered, sweats, VCR, because back then it was VCRs, <laughs> with lots of movies, with um, lots of pastries from the local grocery store, um, smoking and a bong. <laughs> That's it. That is my natural happiest when I would just go, ah, state. I loved it. But I had to earn money. So then I would put on a cocktail waitress outfit and go out and <laughs> cocktail waitress, which is very good if you're a practicing alcoholic. Um, right. And so, and I also found what was really interesting is that when my eating disorder was really raging, my drinking and drug use decreased. And when my drinking and drug use was really raging, my eating disorder would really decrease. And I really just sort of balanced out the two. And it wasn't until I finally got into recovery that they were both sort of screaming like I wasn't balancing anymore. They were both just raging alive and well. And um, I... Um, I guess I should go ahead and get. I was just going to tell you, usually one of the things I talk about is when I lived in New York and when I was modeling, my natural, my, my normal day um, would be to wake up and get, go downstairs to the bakery and get Boston cream pie and carrot cake for breakfast, come back up, eat that, then go down and get a chocolate croissant and a Toblerone, come back up and eat that. And then I need salt, so I'd go back downstairs to the same deli and get a tuna fish sandwich, which was huge, and eat that. And then I would just sort of eat whatever else came, uh, and that was just all before 11 o'clock. And um, I just, I am capable of eating tremendous amounts of food. And, um, and I would just eat until I was stuffed and gross and full, until that stuffed and gross full feeling went away. So it took an hour, and then I would go and eat some more. And that's just how I lived my life until I got here. I um, stumbled in here by accident. I um, was seeing a therapist who just happened to be in recovery, and she was in OA. And um, long story short, she wanted me to go to an eating disorders unit. Um, and I went running home to my parents. I'm like, I have an eating disorder. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's great, honey. What do we have to do? And like, I have to go to this EDU. I'm like, okay, how much is it? And it was like $10,000. And this is back, back in the day, right? And they're like, no. Um, <laughs> so then she got me into AA, and I went to AA, and I immediately started going to OA at the same time. I'm just somebody who can't just work one program. I really needed both programs. And um, and I'm really, really grateful for the OA meeting I went to. And you guys, I think, do it here in your format. They kept asking for a few in your first 30 days of recovery. And that was so important because I had to keep raising my hand. It took me four and a half months to get off of sugar. Um, and I had to raise my hand over and over to be my first, first 30 days. And I was so embarrassed and so just mortified every time I'd break my absence. And one time I got to 28 days and I lost it. And I, that's the closest I'd ever gotten to 30. And I was just horrified and, um, and really humbled by that and felt really powerless. But I loved what, um, and congratulations to all the CHIP people and, and, I, um, and welcome to the newcomers. I'm really trying to talk for you, the newcomers. I have people in here who have known me from the whole 20 plus years I've been here. And my tendency is to be self-conscious because they've heard my story over and over again. They've heard me talk five, six, seven times. Um, and so I'm really trying to talk to the people who are new because... Um, you're what matters. The bottom line, it's like, it, I love this program. It's a program of attraction, not promotion, you know. Um, so I can sit there and promote, promote, promote OA. Um, 
but I'm here to tell you sort of this is how my life has changed. You know, I um, I went to um, I went to meetings and I kept raising my hand and raising my hand and finally after that last time of 28 days binging on sugar, I'm sure um, I got it. Um, supposedly, I'm doing for those listening to this on tape. I do quotation marks because what happened is I got an abstinence. So this was in October 23rd, 1985. It was my last day to technically, there's going to be a qualifier here, eat sugar. Um, the reason why I don't count that is because what my abstinence was was basically three binges a day not to last longer than an hour in length. And that was absolutely the best I could do. I could not do any better than that. And But I eventually left OA. After about two and a half years of sponsoring people and working the steps and having a sponsor and stuff, I just thought this isn't what it's supposed to feel like. I just knew it. And I left. Even though they say here, don't leave. I left. Um, and I left for about a year and a half or so, year, year and a half. And um, during that time, I was working at UCLA's student store, and they had um, bazooka gum, and one of the fortunes in the bazooka gum was you will marry soon. And I was desperate to get married, and so I ate bazooka bubble gum <laughs> repeatedly to get the you will marry soon fortune. Now, keep in mind, that was like 1988. I didn't marry till 2001. <laughs> so don't be fooled by bazooka. I... Um, but uh, so I don't count. I don't count that as my sugar absence. Although I am really proud of the fact that, with the exception of that bazooka gum, which does count as sugar, um, I have not had um, sugar basically in any kind of dessert form since October 23, 1989. Um, but what happened is in, in June of 1980. Um, I'm sorry, 85. June of 1989, I came back, and I came back as only the desperate can. I was willing. I was going to go to any length. And what was interesting is I had no idea what abstinence was supposed to look like because all I'd had is that previous abstinence, which was really painful. But being out there trying to do it my way, it was so uncomfortable. And I was just and I was sober in AA, you know, four four years at that point. And it was like a flat recovery. Like, okay, I'm sober and AA, whoop-dee. I felt nothing because I was numbing out with food. I had no soul, you know, and I just was, my life was just gray and monotone. Um, even though the theory, it looked fine. I had a job, I had friends, but I just, I was really unhappy on the inside. And, um, and so I came back and I got a sponsor. I, I went to one of the meetings on Saturday morning, and then the next day on Sunday morning, which turned into Sunday, um, I, and I got my sponsor right then and there. And I've always, so here's why I believe I am still abstinent. I have always gone to OA meetings. I've never stopped going. I've always had a sponsor, except for like a couple of couple week periods when I was waiting to find somebody. Um, and I've always been willing to change. That to me is the key around here, is I am willing to face my crap head on and address it as uncomfortable as it makes me. I am willing to push through my fears. And what I get is this thing called abstinence. And here's why I didn't know what it was supposed to look like. What my abstinence doesn't look like anything, it feels like. It feels like I can, most days, walk out my door and not only seem normal, but kind of feel normal. I don't feel like I need food to cope with life on life's terms anymore, not in the same way that I used to. I don't have a screaming head anymore telling me you're a loser, you're fat, you're an idiot, you know. I don't beat myself up anymore as a regular rite of passage. I mean, that's I used to just spend so much time being hard on myself, and I don't do that hardly at all anymore. And this is all stuff that, that I think comes with sort of 
consecutive back-to-back abstinence of coming here because my first year of abstinence looked so different from what my abstinence looks like now. I mean, I used to think of soup plantation as a viable dinner option in my first year of abstinence. You could not hold a gun to my head and go to soup plantation. Not because I can't eat that, because it looks nasty. Like, the longer I stay absent, the more I want to, like, take care of my body, you know, and take care of myself. I don't want to hurt myself anymore. It's, it's such an interesting thing about compulsive overeating. It's like, we're in pain, this is my opinion, we're in pain as compulsive overeaters, let me hurt myself. You know, like, what's up with that? You know, I mean, what's up with, like, self-care, something nurturing, you know? Um, I, um, I have this ability to feel like a whole human being on many days. Not always. I do not do this thing perfectly. I've got quite the temper on me with my kids. I, um, I, can, be, um, I can be very argumentative. I can be very stubborn. There's, I have character defects up the kazoo, but I'm, but I'm willing to look at them. Um, it just, um, a lot of people talk about how, I'm just going to fast forward, how um, what if this happens in your recovery, you know, can you stay abstinent through it? And I, when I got married to my husband, um, it's just a story I like to tell. I, so I don't eat sugar and obviously dessert forms. That means whipped cream as well. And um, my Indian wedding, my husband's family has, my husband's Indian, my husband's family has done this whole huge elaborate Indian wedding. I don't know hardly anybody at this thing. I'm having a good time, but it's the time for the cake. And bless my mother-in-law, she had to put fresh strawberries on top of the whipped cream cake. And the idea is for me to eat one of the strawberries off of the whipped cream cake. And I said, no. Video cameras rolling, photographers shooting pictures, and food, a big thing in Indian culture. And I'm supposed to be eating the strawberry. And I said, no, go find me some fruit that's not tainted with whipped cream. All things ground to a halt. I'm standing there. I'm the bride. I'm the center of attention. Our worst fear, right? And, and I did it. Because my abstinence means more to me than what anybody thinks. My abstinence is not worth anybody's opinion of me. And I did, and I didn't eat the, the, the strawberry, you know. They were, like, trying to wipe it off. I'm like, no, it doesn't count. You know, I need fruit. I need fruit in a bowl. Um, I, um, this is sort of the, the big dramatic highlight of, of my recovery. I, um, my mom was dying of cancer, and my husband and I were trying to have children. And we were just desperate trying to have children, because at this point I was like 37 or 38 years old and, you know, clock ticking. And so we did in vitro. And as my mom was dying in, in the hospital, we found out we were pregnant. And it was really, it was just like the most spiritual experience. And it was like, oh, my God, here we go, out of death. My mom was like 59 years old. You know, out of death comes life. And... You know, we got to tell my mom her dying wish was her daughter to be pregnant. I mean, it's just like this huge thing. And my mom died on a Sunday, and on Wednesday I miscarried. And I have, I haven't talked about God at all, which I find hard to believe because I'm a pretty strong believer in my higher power. Um, I'd always had this tremendous faith in God. Like, to me, what my higher power is about is not that nothing bad will ever happen to me. It's that he will give me the tools to get through it. You know, I have had a lot not a lot, but, but enough gnarly stuff happened to me here um, that, by the way, is not even making it into my story, right? Here I have like 30 minutes or something to talk. It's not even part of my story anymore, you know, um, as far as the main talk goes, because you just can't fit it all in necessarily. And, um, and when I had that miscarriage, my faith and my higher power got challenged in such a severe and intense way. Like, up until then, I'd had stuff happen that was hard and and difficult, and I didn't think I was going to, you know, be able to cope, and I did. But this was bigger. This just felt cruel. This just felt 
wrong. There was no way in the universe there was any right that could be wrong out of having a miscarriage four days after your young mother dies, you know, or 59. But, and I was laying on the floor of my house. There was nobody there. All I wanted to do was be committed to a psychiatric ward and pumped up with drugs. I was like, that sounds good to me. I just, I wanted to be checked out. The, the pain in my head and the lack of hope and faith was absolutely mind-numbing and overwhelming. And I didn't know how I was going to get off of the floor. And this very quiet voice came to me, and the voice was, I want to see what happens. Because at that point, I was, um, how long was I abstinent? I don't know, 13, 14 years. How long was I abstinent? Yeah, probably 13 or 14 years abstinent. Um, what I had learned leading up to that point was that they're all, that was never the end of the story. My perceptions, here's why I still continue to come to meetings, is because if I don't, my perceptions start to get wacky. And so I come here because I need my perceptions to be aligned so that I can go out there and do life on life's terms. And when I am not taking good care of myself, my perceptions go awry and my ability to cope goes out the window. And suicidal depression comes in, just depression, period, and then add suicidal on top of that. But what I had learned leading up to that miscarriage is that I don't know the plan. I flat out have not a clue what God's plan is. See, I think I'm so bright that I can anticipate what his, what his thinking is, you know, and I don't know. And so when I was laying on that floor and I, and I heard that voice from somewhere in the, you know, I want to see what happens, I was able to get off the floor and go forward. We did two more rounds of in vitro, both failed. One more was a miscarriage, the other one just flat out failed. And that day that it failed, I got on the phone and called adoption agencies. And I booked an adoption agency. And, um, and a few weeks into the adoption process, I was just obsessed. I was like, we're going to adopt a baby. And my husband's like, let's do one more round of in vitro. And he's not the one getting the shots. He's not the one getting the hormones. He's not the one gaining all the weight. I mean, really easy for him to say, yeah, honey, I can give you these shots. Um, and it was like, are you kidding me? And so I did what I've been taught here. I called my sponsor. And I called my sponsor, and I said, my husband wants me to do another round of in vitro. He's nuts. It's not God's will. God's will is to adopt. (laughs) And my sponsor says, it's not God's will if it's not your husband's will. And that is what I hate about sponsors. You know, that whole, their voice. So here's what my sponsor's for. When I can't hear God, I hear her. You know, and I respect her enough that I hug too when she tells me to hug too. And I... She said, okay, fine. And I hung up the phone and I curled up into a fetal position. And we'd only started this adoption process two weeks before. I mean, we're barely into this thing. It's scratching the surface, if you know how long. We're adopting from India, of all places. So trying to adopt from India, it's a long-ass process. Um, it takes at least two years to adopt from India. And, um, and we're two weeks into it. And my husband wants to do in vitro. And my sponsor says, do that. And I'm just like, ah. And so I hang up the phone and I curl up in bed in a fetal position and I cry. And I just talk to God. I'm like, all right, God, I will do your will. Because I had learned all the way up to that point that I only want to do God's will at this stage of the game. I have zero interest in creating any kind of unnecessary drama or havoc or anything in my life. All I want is God's will. And, um, and I hung up the phone, and two hours later, my phone rang. Two hours. And I answered it, and it was Lisa from the adoption agency. She goes, how you doing? And, of course, I'm t- totally depressed. I'm like, I'm great. I'm great. Because I wanted to think I'm like this happy mom to be. <laughs> and um, she goes, well, we have this really unusual situation happened. We have this little girl. I'm going to cry just thinking about it. We have this little girl. Um, she has been to assign another family, but they've already been assigned a baby from a different orphanage. They can't take her. Would you like to have her? And that was two hours after my surrender. 
two hours. And just some quick facts about Karina. Um, it took exactly six months from, from the first phone call to the agency to the day we brought her home to America. Six months, start to finish. And usually it's like two years. Um, she, um, they granted us guardianship of her, where the Indian government basically signs off on this document. It is really tough to get. And the guardianship came on the one-year anniversary of my mom's death. And Karina's birthday is one day after my first miscarriage. You know, it's like, you can't tell me there's not a God. You know, it's like, at least for me. You know, it's like, he is here. My job is to say uncle and surrender. And, um, and I am, consequently, we have a little boy, too. So Karina's nine now. And um, fast forward a couple of years. Um, and not even a couple of years. Fast forward a year. And Karina was two years old. I told my husband, I said, let's adopt another baby. Because let's do another round of in vitro. I'm like, okay. So I did another round of in vitro. Miscarriage failed. Um, that was fine. I'm like, okay, now let's adopt. And, um, and I knew better than to call my sponsor. I just, I just, I just went ahead with the process and adopted. And um, ironically, so again, it's supposed to take at least two years. And we, for him, I did all the paperwork and turned it in. And the very next morning, we got a call from the agency. They're like, you're not going to believe this. But we have a little boy. He's one years old. He was assigned to a different family. They don't want a year old boy. Would you like him? And we got Kevin. And my kids are 11 months apart, and we died a slow death for years. It was really, really hard. Um, but I got these two amazing kids who are 8 and 9. And if I could freeze them right now, I would. I still don't want them to grow up. I am I'm going through a lot right now, and I can't give you the details, which just kills me because I'm such a talker. I'm so all about, like, blah, here's me, here's my life. I mean, that's how I process. Um, it's really, really stressful. It involves my husband's job. It's intense. Fear of financial insecurity is involved. There's, um, and I, I can't talk about it because I can't have my, so, any my sponsors? Oh, they might listen. Um, it's, it's really hard. And um, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest things I've gone through in years. And, um, and it just involves some big, big decisions and choices. And I'm scared. And all I am praying for is God's will. And, um, well, that, and then I also told God, I said, can you make it perfectly clear? If we're supposed to do this thing, like, I really need you. Like, I want to do your will, but can you also, like, give me some huge sign that, yes, this is it. And God wasn't listening that day. And, um, and so it's still just murky. It's just this not clear which way are we supposed to go. And um, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. But I am willing. Because if anything, um, I love what people say about they ask God to surprise them. So if I really want to be surprised, I kind of like to no things. I'm a little more comfortable with that, but I, um, but I am open on my willing because I've learned so much here. I have not a clue what the plan is, but I know there is one. I am convinced there is a plan. Um, I'll, I'll finish on this. Um, when I, the first day I, I went to go get sober, I wanted to give up drugs, alcohol, sugar, sugarless stuff, um, and cigarettes. And I lasted two hours. <laughs> so I got the sobriety part, and then I got the abstinence part, and I'm here to tell you I am free from drugs, alcohol, sugar, sugarless stuff, fruit juice sweetened stuff, caffeine, and cigarettes, and except for recently the fear of financial insecurity. And that is not me. And I get so many normies out there going, wow, you're amazing. How do you not do sugar? It's like poison to me. And it's not that I don't do sugar. It's that God removed the desire to do sugar. So here's how it works for me, and I really will end here. Um, how it works is that I come to a realization that, that something needs to be let go of. 
and how how I feel just for me that God sort of sees if I really am willing is I have to white knuckle it for a little bit, usually for about a week. You know, it's like I have to feel some discomfort. I have to feel my feelings. I have to white knuckle it for about a week, whether it was cigarettes, sugar-free stuff, sugar, you know, anything. And then what God does is comes in with his grace and takes away the desire. That's the hardest thing for me to convey to newcomers or people I'm sponsoring. It's like, because my disease tells me, no, you cannot let go of that thing. You will die. You will die if you don't have that thing to self-medicate to get you through life. And what recovery tells me is, if I am willing, and I'm willing to go to any lengths, then he will then meet me halfway and he will take the desire away. And I have not had the desire to eat sugar since 1985. I haven't had the desire to binge since 1989. Um, that's not totally true. Sometimes I would like to eat a ton more. And it doesn't mean I eat these little baby meals. Okay. It means that I sometimes, sometimes my meals are big, sometimes my meals are small. doesn't matter. But they're not... So big that I'm like, ooh, let's go get that bag of chips. I mean, I have not pulled out an entire bag of chips and eaten the whole thing in, you know, almost 23 years. That's miraculous. So, that that, I will stop. Thank you so much. Did anyone ask questions? Ah, okay. How do, for the tape recording, how have I worked my step nine making amends? Um, a lot of the opportunities have presented themselves. Um, so, I did the list. Right, so I've worked all the steps. I did the list, and um, I've really tried to be my m- many of my amends. I think because I'm a compulsive overeater, even though I was an alcoholic too, um, I-, I did a lot of staying indoors. I wasn't out there necessarily hurting a lot of people, but I did have a lot of financial messes. And I've tried to be rigorously honest. So, like for example, when I was sober and, and abstinent, abstinent too, quite a few years, I um, cl- got laid off from a job and purposely collected unemployment and purposely did not look for another job. With my sponsors, okay at the time, but then several years later, I came to the conclusion that was not okay. They specifically say you can collect unemployment if you're actually looking for work, um, and I wasn't. So I figured out here was like 14 years later how much that would have been, compounded it with interest, and wrote a $4,000 check to a charity. Whoa. Which, yeah, trust me, my husband was not pleased. My husband's a normie, and he was like, you're doing what? Um, I did the same thing with an ex-boyfriend where he had taken care of a dog of ours, and, um, and I compounded interest, and I paid, he, was, he was actually an AA, and I paid him back. He's like, wow, nobody's ever made me an amends. I'm like, cool, okay. I, just, I, I feel like it's important. So. Good questions. Do I have a favorite step, and then do I have a daily 11th step process? Um, my favorite step is six, and seven, probably. The, the two go together. I love getting rid of my character defects. I have seen God do just such miraculous things. Like, I am a rager. I had no idea I was a rager until I had two kids, not one. One kid, I thought I was the best mommy in the world. I'm like, oh, I didn't inherit that part at all, that, that mean mommy thing. And I had two kids, and I, I found out I was an absolute witch. Um <laughs> And a lot of that, not perfectly, but 80, 90% of that has been removed because of step six and seven. I think step six and seven are so profound, and I love seeing the value of them. Um, and the 11th step, um, so here's, I'm a very hyper person, as you can tell. I really, um, so best of me- I can do a meditation is 10 minutes a day, and it's amazing how often I forget. But I really need to do it, and especially when stuff's hitting the fan, I feel like God doesn't really care what I'm doing as long as I'm doing something, right? I don't feel judged by my higher power like, ooh, Allison, if you don't do it for 30 minutes, you're not doing a good job. I just feel like God wants to see me slow down for 10 minutes. 
and say hello, you know, and really tune in. I pray every morning. I, I get on my knees every single morning. No matter what, I roll out of bed, I hit my knees. And at night, I hit my knees before I go to bed. And also, a lot of my conversation at night while I'm going to sleep is with God. The actual meditation, I set that timer. I get the little lavender pillow, and I make myself do it for 10 minutes because I am busy. And I have things to do, and I don't want to do it, but I force myself. Like exercise, I force myself. I make a lot of phone calls. I have a sponsor. Did you get a sponsor yet? Yeah. Good. That's how, that, I'll tell you, if I can give you any piece of advice here, this is not the advice-giving program. Sponsor. Sponsor changes everything. Um, I have had to sit with my feelings. And, and what's really important about that is before, for a long time in my sobriety, the feelings would be so intense I wanted to die. And I remember hearing um, two speakers, two different speakers, Sean Allen, who's not with us anymore, um, one said, um, I realized I didn't want to kill myself. I wanted to kill the moment. And the other mm-hmm. phrase was, um, suicide was a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. And those really held me in good stead because I am the type of person that when I'm having those intense, raging feelings, is that I'm hopeless, usually in that moment, and I think that this situation is never going to end or ever get better, and I want to die, and I just am crawling out of my skin. And what's just been important for me is to just go forward no matter what, to not give in to that desire to binge or eat sugar or whatever. And then and then I find out, it's like, it's amazing. Like, this is a, a sponsee, maybe I'll call. I mean, a lot of people with time here will have this, where a sponsee's calling and leaving us this desperate, dying, sobbing message. And for whatever reason, you didn't get the message to like hours later. And then you call them back and they're like, I'm fine. I'm good. But in that moment, they were dying, you know. And, and it's, so it's like it's really important right here to learn that those feelings just don't mean squat. Not really. You know, like all these feelings I'm going through with this whole thing with my husband's job, what's important is how I cope with them. You know, how I deal with them, how I process and not go down into the trenches with them and make them worse. Not any, not right now. I mean, I, pre- I sponsor a lot of people, so I'm, I'm on a lot of phone calls with them. So I go to four meetings a week. Um, I, I call my sponsor, and I sponsor a lot of people. And um, that, to me, helps me in good stead. And then as needed, like I found myself a few weeks ago, I was writing. I don't usually write anymore. I used to write all the time. It sort of ebbs and flows, but I, I'm recovering enough. I kind of know what I need to get through. Cool. Okay. Switching sponsors. Um, I um, have switched sponsors multiple times, especially in OA. I've had my same sponsor now for, for quite a long time. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's um, I've outgrown sponsors. You know, it's, it's sort of it's just... It's just kind of a, a feeling. It's kind of a need and a feeling that I've gone as far as I can with this person. And, and it's time to change. It's really tough now. If I wanted to switch sponsors, it would be really hard now because I'm abstinent so long. There aren't that many people out there with that much more abstinence. Um, but my sponsor has like 35 years or something, so that, that's working just fine. Um, but I, it's an awkward thing to switch, but I have never regretted it. Never. I've never looked back and said, oh, I wish I still had her. You know, and I feel like God kind of always lets me know when it's time to kind of go to the next step. And it's always been a good thing. So how do I continue to believe there's a relationship with my higher power work out when I don't see signs from my higher power? I go smaller. I go, um, I start asking God for just, in fact, it's interesting you bring that up because I should probably start using that now for little tiny signs, not big signs. I'm a compulsive over here. I like big, big in everything. Um, and sometimes God gives me big signs. But sometimes it's just little, teeny, tiny, itsy-bitsy signs. Like, this is going to be really stupid, and I was embarrassed to share about this. But for some reason, back before I ever got into recovery, whenever I'd see the number one three or four times in a row, for some reason I felt like that was God telling me he was there. 
which is just bizarre. Like, okay, and it's been interesting because what it does whenever I do happen to see, like I just saw it today, you know, I saw four number ones in a row, it was just like, oh, yeah, God, you're here. You know, and that was like the little itsiest, bitsiest sign. And sometimes I see it in little smaller ways. Um, there was a, I can't tell you what it was, but there was a sign I had recently where it was just like something I didn't think was going to go our way having to do with my husband's job, and it kind of did. And I was like, okay, God, but what does that mean? Are we supposed to do it or are we not supposed to? Do it? Um, but I go smaller, and I look for smaller signs because that's really what I want. I just want some reassurance that he's here and that I will get through. It doesn't mean that the problem's going to go away right away. Sometimes I have to wait for the, a long time for the problem. I wanted to be married. Bad. Bad, bad, bad. You know, for my whole recovery. And people would like, after I'd speak, they'd be like, oh, thank God you're finally married. Um, <laughs> it's like so annoying, but I just had this desire, and I didn't get it until I was like 11 years abstinent or something. I mean, hello, yoo-hoo. Um, but, you know, so I just, I needed, like, the smaller things to kind of get me through when I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I have to be done. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>